Welcome to the Talking Recruitment Podcast from the REC. Every week we look at all the latest insights, perspectives and experiences from across our diverse recruitment industry. Hello everyone and welcome along to another edition of Talking Recruitment, the REC podcast. My name is Neil Carberry, the REC Chief Executive. In a moment we're going to do a bit of a deep dive into one of the topics that every REC member has been asking me and my colleagues about since the summer and that's holiday pay, uh, particularly in reference to the Harper Trust versus Brazel judgment from the Supreme Court. Before that, a little update from around the shop here at the REC. It's certainly the case that we think that the market's moved into a slightly new phase over the last uh, the last few weeks uh, as the economy slowed down. So the market's moved on from that fast paced growth of earlier in the year into a flatter period, maybe a little drawback in activity on permanent, but still everything at a very high level. So no grounds for pessimism, but certainly not the place we were a few months ago. If you want to get on top of all the market data, our report on jobs, that's the industry billings data for October, came out on the 10th of November. And we've got our forward look, our survey of clients, your clients, uh, coming out on the 23rd of November, that's jobs outlook. Looking more broadly at the picture on the economy, the autumn statement on the 17th of November is going to be a big moment for new Chancellor Jeremy Hunt and new Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, and that will set out the government's plan to uh, deal with the situation we're currently in. Do check in on the REC channels for our response to that and any insight that you need once the event's taken place. Away from the market and uh, and the fiscal uh, picture, a couple of things to draw your attention to. Uh, first, we're, everyone's looking forward to the REC Awards on the 24th of November. And if you're coming to join us, it's a packed room. We've never had so many people in that room this year. We'll look forward to seeing you for a great night. And do check in on the REC social channels for some of the materials around that to get yourself uh, going. The, the other piece is just last week, we launched the uh, the REC's 2023 renewals program for our corporate members. So do check out the emails that are coming to your inbox in terms of our plans for next year, but also some of the exciting new things that we're thinking, thinking about. Do have a chat to your account manager about uh, getting your uh, renewal done, because of course, one of the joys of the REC is you are both our customers, but also our shareholders. We, we only exist to serve recruiters here in the UK, trading in the UK and from the the UK and your support is always valued. Now let's turn to the discussion of the day which is about the Harper Trust and Brazel uh, holiday pay judgment and before I introduce our guest for today um, we should, should point you in the direction of the Harper Trust hub on the REC website which has all of the details uh, of the work that we've done and more insight available and you can check that out at rec.uk.com forward slash holiday pay. Now let's turn to our guest for today and deep, dive a little deeper into the position on holiday pay post the judgment. Well, let's turn to our conversation for today, which is going to be a deep dive on holiday pay and the working time regulations and, of course, the the recent Supreme Court uh, judgment in Harper Trust versus Brazel. Uh, and our guest today is Paul Chamberlain uh, from JMW, a, a longtime friend of the REC. Paul, welcome to the REC podcast. Thank you very much, Neil. Great to be here. So why don't we start with uh, the very basics? People will come to the podcast from different places in terms of um, their understanding of the case. 
Um, should we just start by introducing listeners to the the Harper Trust case and what it implies? Yeah, by all means. So um, it's a case that focuses on holidays, both the uh, the number of weeks holiday entitlement that workers have under the working time regulations, and then how much they should be paid for that holiday. Um, and the and the two points are inextricably linked, but unfortunately, I come across lots of clients who focus on the pay element and not the entitlement to leave element. So, the the facts are quite specific, but the judgment itself, I think, is of much wider implication. So, Mrs. Mrs. Brazel was a teacher, uh, a music teacher, um, uh, in the Harper trust it was a an, an academy trust and she worked during term time but she didn't work all of the time during term time she only worked uh, irregular or infrequent hours clearly didn't work during holidays um, and an issue arose in relation to how much holiday she was entitled to and what she should be paid and the, the case came to the Supreme Court. It went all the way through the UK court system. It came to the Supreme Court really as a consequence of something changing, something quite dramatic changing in 2011. So prior to 2011, um, Mrs. Brazel was paid holiday pay by reference to how much she'd earned in the previous term. Um, from 2011, ACAS issued some guidance that suggested the way in which you could correctly and ought to calculate holiday pay for workers who had irregular or infrequent hours um, was to apply uh, a percentage to uh, the pay which they'd received, 12.07%. 0.07% was the percentage that ACAS suggested should be applied. Now, um, the case focused on that, but just to put the facts into context, prior to 2011, uh, in, in a standard Easter holiday, Mrs. Brazel would be paid probably around about £600. Um, when the way the school decided to change their holiday pay calculation came into effect after the ACAS guidance was published, that dropped to about £400. So you can imagine she was somewhat perplexed as to why for the same period of leave and for the same amount of pay that she was getting, um, her holiday pay should drop. Um, so she challenged it. And the two questions that ended up being dealt with by the, uh, the Supreme Court were very relevant, extremely pertinent and of significant import as far as the recruitment industry is concerned in particular. The first question was whether or not someone who only worked part of the year should still be entitled to 5.6 weeks paid annual leave each year. And of course, most people I suspect will be familiar with that entitlement. It's a working time regulations entitlement. All workers are entitled to 5.6 weeks paid leave each year. The trust in this case argued that because she was only a part year worker, that that 5.6 weeks should be prorated. 
So she should get less than 5.6 weeks paid annual leave each year. And the Supreme Court was pretty definitive on this point and said the working time regulations don't make any distinction between part year workers and full time workers for the purposes of their entitlement to 5.6 weeks paid annual leave. It's not appropriate, they said, to prorate someone's annual leave entitlement in line with um, the way they work. So full-time or part-time, everybody is entitled to 5.6 weeks. Now, there might be some listeners to this podcast who are scratching their heads saying, how can that be right? Well, if you think about holidays in a slightly different way, I'm always concerned when clients come to me and, and talk to me about holidays in terms of um, a, 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 an entitlement to a number of days each year. Everybody assumes that 5.6 weeks equates to 28 days. Well, of course, 5.6 weeks only equates to 28 days if the worker is working full time. So 5.6 weeks can mean fewer days than 28. And, and an obvious example would be if someone works on average two and a half days a week, their 5.6 weeks wouldn't equate to 28 days, it would equate to 14 days. But the point is their entitlement is still on that. Um, that works perfectly well as a calculation where someone's working a steady pattern of uh, of days across the year, doesn't it? So you're kind of full year worker who just works part time. You you the the kind of pro rata calculation works, and what we've got here is a situation where it didn't work for Mrs. Brassel. That's right, isn't it? That, I mean, that that's broadly it. I think the way to think about it is to concentrate on the 5.6 weeks leave entitlement and then to work backwards and uh, uh, apply that to calculate the number of days which the individual's entitled to. Um, I think it's wrong to think about it the other way around. You should think about it in terms of weeks entitlement rather than days and then work backwards depending on their working pattern. And that's that's pretty much what the Supreme Court said they said there's nothing in the regulation that allows 5.6 weeks to be prorated if someone doesn't work a full year everyone gets 5.6 weeks but the number of days that, that equates to may well differ from case to case so it was pretty clear on that and what it went on to say was that if um, if the government took the view that that was wrong from a public policy perspective then they'd have to legislate for it because the working time regulations as they're currently drawn um, they don't distinguish between part year workers and full year workers in terms of weeks entitlement to leave so I, I don't i don't think there were many employment lawyers around the country who were surprised by that part of the decision and equally i don't think there were many employment lawyers who were particularly surprised by the second part of the decision because the court went on to to, to then discuss exactly how someone like Mrs. Brazel's holiday pay should be calculated. And you go back to the facts that I was outlining a little bit later, uh, sorry, a little bit earlier. Um, there was a clear discrepancy for her in pound, shillings and pence terms. One year she got amount X and next next year she got amount Y. And that was because the, the school effectively decided to apply the ACAS guidance. And she couldn't understand why that was why that was right or how that could be right. So the Supreme Court again looked at it and said, well, the way in which holiday pay should be calculated 
is by reference to a the working time regulations and b the employment rights act so the working time regulations say for every week's leave a worker should get a week's pay and then the employment rights act defines what a week's pay is and a week's pay in the employment rights act has a slightly different definition depending on whether someone has normal working hours um, or if someone has no normal working hours and Mrs Brazel fell into the category of someone who had no normal working hours. When you looked at her work patterns there was no normality to the uh, the framework of hours that she worked. So the Employment Rights Act says in order to properly calculate someone's holiday pay in that situation you look back at now at least it wasn't at the time but now over the previous 52 weeks you add up everything that's been earned during the course of that 52 week period you divide it by 52 and that gives you a week's pay that's the amount that should be used when you're working out what to pay someone like mrs brazel so um i'm not a mathematician neil by any stretch of the imagination but those who um who are good at maths have told me that what that broadly means is if someone is working close to a full year uh, with regular hours then 12.07 percent will be broadly correct but for someone like mrs brazel who didn't work close to a full year the uh, the smaller the proportion of the year that's worked the much less likely 12.07 percent will be correct um, in Mrs Brazel's case, when the Supreme Court did the sort of retrospective calculation, if you were going to work it out in percentage terms, it was more like 14 or 15 percent in her case. But it, we can get bogged down in bogged down in the maths. I think the I think the main principle is this: in this sector, you and I both know that a lot of recruitment agencies, a lot of umbrella companies try to for perfectly good commercial reasons by the way try to to do a forward prediction of what holiday pay should be and they ask clients to cough 12.07 percent and they've got to do that they've got to do that for very good commercial reasons because they're charging the client in advance for a holiday pay liability that hasn't yet crystallized what this case says is that if you apply the correct methodology for calculating holiday pay, you can only ever calculate it correctly at the point at which someone has taken the leave. Because you have to look back over the previous 52 weeks. If there aren't 52 weeks to look back over, you look back over however many weeks are available. Um, and you and you use the amount that's been paid or the, or the money that's been paid over in those weeks to calculate what a week's pay is. Clearly, you can only do that at the point at which someone's taken the leave. You haven't got the crystal ball facility to accurately predict forwards in advance that holiday pay liability is. So what it effectively means now is that the standard routine that this industry has used in the past, either to charge clients in advance for holiday pay um or for umbrellas to charge agencies in advance for holiday pay that standard calculation of 12.07 percent now is no longer effective let's just pick it pick up on that because there are a couple of themes there that i think we probably want to land with people who are listening one is 
there's pretty obviously a conversation to have with your clients here and to have it well about the model that has been in wide use in the sector until now being no longer fit for purpose. And I think carrying for, for an agency owner operator who's thinking, who's thought of this as a back office payroll uh, function in the past, I think that brings it to the front office and into the client relationship in terms of how you, you frame your uh, arrangements to make sure that you're compliant. And then there's also a skill set within your business as an agency of being able to run these processes in a more complex way. Those seem to me to be the the, the two immediate changes that if you're a, an agency leader, you need to have on your mind. Is that fair? I think that's absolutely spot on. And I think the more difficult of the two that you've outlined is the client relationship issue. Clients are used to being charged in a particular way. They're also used to having some certainty around what those charges look like. And I've had several conversations with many, many agencies over the last couple of months or so since this case hit, um, where they've been scratching their heads as to how they address this with clients. And the, the software provider, by the way, just dealing with your second point, the providers of software into the industry are also scratching their heads a little because all of their programs run on the basis that 12.07% is the inalienable calculation, uh, and that's now no longer the case. So that they're, they're wondering how they go about assisting agencies from a software perspective. But the client conversation, agency to client or umbrella to agency, is much more difficult now. Some people are suggesting that it might be possible to err on the side of caution and increase the charge rate generally to the client, maybe to 15 or 16% for holidays, um, and then maybe offer um, a rebate to the client at the point at which the individual takes their leave and perhaps not all of that holiday pot, if I can put it in those terms, is is used. And that that's one way, but that of course means asking the client for more upfront, which is a difficult commercial conversation. Or the alternative is to say, well, we'll continue to charge at 12.07%. But if when we do the calculation for Mr. Bloggs, when he goes off on his holidays, if if we actually owe him more money, we reserve the right to come back and ask you for it. Um, well, you know, if you say that quickly, it sounds reasonably straightforward, but it doesn't take into account the reality of the relationship. Not all temps, for example, will continue to work for the same client during the course of the holiday year, they may switch from one client to the next. So leaving discussions about additional holiday pay or any element of a rebate is going to be quite tricky if Mr. Bloggs is working for client X for three months and client Y for seven or eight months. That's a real it's a real problem. So you're absolutely right, Neil, that the, the commercial the commercial angle to the really, really tricky one. Well, you put your finger on something important there as well, which I'll come back to in a second. But on that piece about the commercial aspect and the conversation with clients, I think one of the things we're really keen for REC members to do is to point at us and say, look, the REC say I have to do this. Because that, that of yeah. course, is always a a, 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 a crutch for member, members to lean on as they're having these discussions. And then after that, I, it's probably neither your job nor my job to tell 
recruiters which of the options they should explore as long as they deliver compliance with the with the law as it now stands because the, i think at the heart of this for agencies is the fact that while mrs brazel was a uh, a part year worker and didn't have really and didn't have a pattern of normal hours what she did have was a steady relationship she was a uh, she was employed on a contract of employment uh, by the by Harper Trust and that was on an ongoing basis um, whereas as you've just pointed to with agency temps we're dealing with people who might ha work in dozens of uh, uh, of client uh, companies in any given year and may work for any agency with six or seven different clients and 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 also be working with a different agency with with with, with other clients so the the challenge in the uh, in the agency sector is, if anything, accelerated a bit from from the relative, perhaps, simplicity of uh, Mrs. Brazel's cases. Do you think that's fair? I think that I think that is fair. Um, a lot of commentators have highlighted the the sort of specifics of the Harper case, and seem very reluctant to extrapolate those principles. And I I come at it from a completely different perspective. I don't think the case is limited to employees on zero hours contracts, which is what Mrs. Brazel was. Um, all workers are entitled to paid annual leave. Um, all employees are workers, but not all workers are employees. Um, so, if there happens to be a worker contract, a contract for services, as we as we as we know it which has an, a, a, an overarching effect. Uh, and to be fair, they are few and far between currently, but they used to be in vogue. I think exactly the same problem arises. Um, the, the, the other problem, Neil, which I think is also something that um, commercially will create another pressure, is to remember that clients aren't just looking at this from an agency perspective. It is fair to say that a lot of clients, end-user clients, aren't paying their own staff properly when it comes to holiday pay. Um, and, 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 and there's an immediate inbuilt tension that, in a sense, has got nothing to do with the Harper case. Um, you could find yourself in a situation where the client says, well, the agency worker's doing slightly better than our own staff here because we, we're being told we've got to pay holiday pay in this particular way, but that isn't the way we pay our own people. So I think there's a there's a discrepancy there that creates an additional commercial pressure, which might make this a much more complicated conversation with the end user client than otherwise it would have been. There's something about how you keep shop here. And certainly, I mean, f forgive me, Paul, but I think with any legal judgment like uh, like Harper Trust or any complex judgment that comes from the Supreme Court, uh, I think law, uh, solicitors tend to be a little bit like academics. There, there will be four or five camps with different uh, people sitting in them. Um, and that whole debate about the potential impact of the judgment on contract for services is, I, I think, quite a lively one. Um, but... At heart, there are some key principles here, aren't there? Which is, um, if you if you're on a contract for services, that overarching thing does put you at more risk. 
you'd certainly want to be thinking about the closeness to the end of the actual assignment at which you do the 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 formal ending of the assignment uh the p45ing the calculation and the payment of any holiday pay so th that that seems to me to be quite important however you're um on whatever basis you're supplying your attempts yeah. for for an agency just getting your shop working really uh really smoothly on that and and giving visibility i think to to temps of that i was talking to an rec member uh during the week actually who was very uh who was very pleased with the fact that the the temp facing software they were putting in was now you had a little holiday pay calculator that that yeah. that that was allowing temps to see it as it as it racked up that feels to me like an area for action from most agencies would you agree I would. I mean, I think agencies have really got to contemplate their navels as a consequence of, of, of this. I, I mean, you're right, just to go back to the point about contracts for services and the termination arrangements, I think whether we're in contract of employment or contract for services territory, agencies now have got to focus a lot more closely on the, on the, on the start of that contract and the end of it. And I think we ought to be moving away from um the situation where if there's no contact with a worker for a period of time then a p45 is issued i think agencies need to get their processes um much more efficiently drawn to make sure that as soon as the assignment comes to an end there's a very clear notification given that the contract has ended at that point so there's no suggestion that almost by default that contract's turned into an overarching contract because there was no termination of it. Now, I know the REC contract makes it clear that at the end of an assignment, the contract ends and there's no ongoing relationship. It's really important to have that in your contract, but I think you've got to back it up with uh, a, a process which supports that provision. So a, a very clear ending or termination arrangement of assignment starts a very clear onboarding process that makes it abundantly clear to everybody concerned that that's the start of a new contract so there's a there are some there are some process issues here that i think agencies need to look at closely um, to avoid the possibility that someone finds an overarching contract exists when no one really intended it to i think that's absolutely reasonable and and i think that kind of active management of it within agencies is is a key message if you go to the the kind of things we're putting out there's a harper trust and brazil um hub on the rec website that members uh, can access there's something here as well i think about the broader working time regulations so sort of taking off a kind of member advisory hat and putting on my campaigns and lobbyist hat i think for some time there's been a a view in parts of the industry and i think we would share at the rec that the working time regulations could function more efficiently and more clearly to support compliance and obviously we we are we're recording this at a time of great political tumult um and the former prime minister uh uh, was very keen on sunsetting all the EU regulations, but actually governments have a relatively narrow 
political envelope, at least up until the next uh, general election. So while there's a live discussion, as the Supreme Court pointed out, that the way, you know, if you want to simplify this, the way to simplify it is to change the legislation. There is live discussion about that. I think it would be a mistake for agencies to to think the law will change on this quickly, even though there has been a lot of bravado about sunsetting the working time regulations at the end of uh, 2023. The critical thing is that the regulations as we stand today are probably the regulations that we will have for some time to come. And therefore, the kind of actions you're talking about, Paul, are, are really important. I wanted to ask one thing further, though, which is what do you think the scope for retrospective uh, claims here is? Obviously, we're talking about uh, Mrs. Brazel and you mentioned the date um, uh, earlier on in the podcast of 2011, which is 11 years ago. Um, what potential liability exists looking backwards that uh, companies should be aware of? That's a really good question. And if you'd asked me this a couple of years ago, I would have said it's a potentially problematic area. But there was some legislation brought in which gave people, employers, agencies some clarity. So if these claims are being dealt with as unlawful deductions from wage claims, which is what most of them would be dealt with as, there's a there's a two year backstop. So it isn't possible to bring claims um that go back further than two years um, but there's a little bit of gloss I need to put on that as well because it isn't every single deduction in that two-year period that will be caught because there's also a, a legal principle that says you have to be able to link um, individual or discrete deductions uh, uh, together as a series in order to be able to go back even two years so if there's a gap of more than three months between the deductions it's not possible to link them it's a relatively complex area, um, but I think if there's a takeaway, it's recognised that you may be exposed, if you're an agency or an umbrella, you may be exposed to claims going back two years, but, but as a consequence of the legislation that was brought in, it's very unlikely that claims beyond that can be brought. But even, even a two-year uh, backstop could give rise to a significant liability if you're in an agency supply arrangement where there are hundreds or thousands of people being supplied at any one time. Um, but that hopefully will give people a little bit of comfort that we're not talking about going back to the year dot. So that is, I think that will be reassuring. So the big message here is sort yourself out now and going forward with the knowledge that any future legal change around the working time regulations is probably still a while away. So let's just draw this together a, a little bit then, uh, Paul. If I am a typical small to medium size agency owner operator, what are the two or three big questions I need to ask myself right now just to make sure that I'm getting it right? I think you need to um, to make sure that you're doing what in reality you should always have been doing, which is making a calculation of people's holiday pay based on what they've earned uh, and not thinking of a forward projection. Um, you need to understand what your exposure is first, I think. You also need to run that in tandem with a conversation with your client. Um, there are lots of agency clients who 
really don't understand Harper Trust. Um, or, or maybe not that they don't understand it, but they turned a blind eye to it because their own arrangements with their own staff seem to be running pretty well and no one's causing them any difficulties. But I do think those two things have got to run in parallel. There's got to be an assessment of your exposure and the way you're currently doing things. And if the way you're currently doing things falls foul of the principles in Harper Trust and Brazel, you need to change them forwards. And in conjunction with that, a dialogue needs to be opened up with your client to make sure that they're standing shoulder to shoulder with you um, and they're recognising that you are um, you are required to change the way you operate your holiday pay arrangements. I think it might be worthwhile, Neil, just very quickly before we do end, um, because we've not touched on it, the 12.07% calculation is also used for those agencies who roll up their holiday pay into the rate. Yeah, and, you know, people like me have sat here many, many times before making the point that technically the rolled up holiday pay approach is unlawful, but there is a bit of a get out of jail free card offered by the courts. Um, which will enable you to take into account any any enhancement that you have paid over and above the rate and offset that against any holiday pay liability. But it's abundantly clear that applying 12.07% in a rolled up rate situation is also going to cause problems. So um, really consider very carefully whether the rolled up rate has any long-term future. Again, I understand the commercials involved. Um, if you're going to do a rolled up rate, you're going to have to be very, very careful about falling foul of Harbour Trust. Well, thank you for the opportunity for me to restate to listeners the REC's position, which is don't roll up your holiday pay. Um, and yep. as you've said, uh, I don't think it was massively sustainable before Harper Trust, but it looks even less so um, following the judgment. Um, it, listeners who are interested in further support, and we talked about talking to clients, the Harper Trust uh, hub is on the REC uh, website. You can look there and obviously get in touch with the legal helpline, our solicitors, uh, your account manager, or me directly if you have any questions. Paul, if people want to find out a little bit more from JMW, get in touch with you, get in touch with the firm, where can they do that? Yeah, that's great. Well, the website is jmw.co.uk and my email address, paul.chamberlain, jmw.co.uk. As always, Paul, it's been a pleasure to have a chat with you about what is a difficult issue that requires agency owners' attention right now, uh, but you've walked us through it in, in very clear terms. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, Neil. Thanks very much indeed. Well, what a great discussion with Paul on what is a uh, naughty subject, but one which we as recruiters have to get right as part of our compliance. As I said before I introduced Paul today, do turn to the REC website at rec.uk.com forward slash holiday pay for all of the REC details on all of the, the issues that we've discussed today. If you enjoyed this discussion, why not dig into our back catalogue and try out one or two other uh, recent episodes. The last episode, episode 19 with the BITC and ASDA was all about inclusive hiring in a tight uh, labour market. And episode 18 was about upping your game on candidate sourcing with Vanessa Rath, who is always an engine of optimism for our industry. So do check those out and I'll see you again soon on another episode of Talking Recruitment, the REC podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Join me for another episode soon, and check out our back catalogue at rec.uk.com to catch up on some other fantastic discussions that are really helpful for recruiters. 
You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. So subscribe to REC Podcasts to never miss an episode.